I can't follow that up. <clears throat> All right, if you don't have a Bible, the guys are going to get some Bibles in your hand. This is a Bible study. We're not going to study from the. We're not just going to study from the Bible. We're going to actually study the Bible. Okay, big difference. So. Um, if you need a Bible, put one in your hands. Cool thing is, I'm going to ask you to scribble in it and write in it. So grab a pen. If you're getting one of the church Bibles, write in it anyways, and then just take it home. Okay? And if you've got a clean one at home that you forgot, just give that away or something like that. Okay? Bible should be tattered and written in and scraped up and beat up. You should be, need a new Bible every year. Okay? So if you'll open up with me to Hosea. Old Testament I think it's page 551 if you have a church Bible. All right. 551, 511. There it is. I got two of the letters right. Or numbers right. See? Oh my gosh. Okay. I arrived in Thousand Oaks at 3 a.m. this morning. Okay. So I'm a little jumbled. We ran the Tough Mudder South Lake Tahoe yesterday. So 10 and a half miles, a death run up and down a mountain. Um, Team Godspeak. It was Team Godspeak. A couple of other fellows. I know Mark Achenbach is here. Can't believe you made it to the 930. Um, <laughs> So we ran the Tough Mudder yesterday, 10 and a half miles. I think we, we started at like 5,000 feet. We ran up to about 8,000 feet. The first five miles of the race are all uphill with obstacles. It was at, at one point, one of our teammates, we had seven guys, literally asked me, said, Mark, we paid for this? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we paid to do this. So if I'm jumbling some words, please be gracious. But the book of Hosea is in the Old Testament. If you don't know what that is, crack the New Testament and go 12 books to the left. Okay? So Minor Prophets is the tip of the Minor Prophets. It's a coarse book. It's an edgy book. Okay? I love teaching through it with the college ministry because every week I get to call them prostitutes. Okay? And if it, it already you're... Can we say that in church? Yeah, because God said it in the Bible so we can say it in the church, which is cool. So uh, we are doing our summer study, 14 weeks through uh, the book of Hosea. We've titled it, Seeing God's Story Through the Prophet and the Prostitute. Okay, it's not about us, it's about God's story and its implications for us. So open up to Hosea chapter 2. Chapter 2. If you're not there, just say hold up and I'll just continue anyways. So the interesting thing about Hosea is that God tells a prophet to marry a prostitute. Yeah. He tells a prophet to go marry a prostitute. And it wasn't even like he tricked him and said like, hey, go marry her. And then, oh, you got married. By the way, she sleeps with other men. It was, you know, she sleeps with men. You know, she's not going to stop. Marry her anyways. And it's a coarse book. It's 14 chapters of very curious language, very pressing analogies. But th this actually happened. Some major theologians in church history struggle with the fact that this could have actually happened. Say, so, well, I think it was really kind of analogous. If this is analogous, think of the implications it has for us. Because guess who's the prostitute in the story? <laughs> Me too. I like it, right? So, okay. We are the prostitute in this. And so you need to understand the Old Testament which is summed up in one word. What is that? Jesus. Not many churches in America get that right. In fact, some churches bring in Jewish rabbis to teach the Old Testament because they think those are the guys that really get it. They actually don't understand a thing about the Old Testament if they don't understand that everything points forward to the coming Christ. And so the Old Testament points forward to the coming Christ. The New Testament speaks to his ministry and reflects back on his ministry. And so everything we're looking at has to do with Jesus. Shocking doesn't have to do with you. Now it has implications for you. 
but it's not about you. I've read the thing, you're not in it, right? (laughs) My name's in there, but it wasn't even me they were talking about. It's not about us, it's about God. That's why we start by saying it's seeing God's story through the prophet and the prostitute, because he's always telling a story. Our God is a great God of stories. And he orchestrates them so that we can see him play out on earth in our trials, in our struggles, in our fleeing from him, in our return to him. In every way, he's showing himself to us. And we're going to have an interesting time, an interesting study, and we're going to cover two chapters, gasp, right? I know this is Calvary Chapel where we generally do like one or two words at a time, right? (laughs) I'm guilty. Tonight I'm teaching on grace, one word, the whole night, okay? Grace, 12 layers, two categories, it's going to be awesome, okay? Transform my walk in understanding the grace, okay? But we're going to go through two chapters. Is that cool? Chapters two and chapter three, three short, don't freak out, okay? We get to like 48 minutes and we're still like halfway through chapter two. We'll still finish it. Don't worry. All right, so chapter two, and let me set up the whole book real fast. There's three chapters and then 11 chapters. Chapters one through three sets up a familial understanding of what God's about to convey to you today. And he does it through a prophet Hosea and the prostitute Gomer. Hosea means, anyone know? Salvation. And as much as coarse it is, is understanding that it's this prostitute and they're constantly bagging on Gomer's unfaithfulness. And, and, but Gomer means complete. And so salvation comes to completion. And the first three chapters set up this marriage that had to be so painful for Hosea. Gentlemen, Hosea was told to marry an adulterer. He had to walk through the market. He had to go to Thousand Oaks Mall and walk through the mall with guys winking at him because they know his wife as only a husband should know his wife. They'd been with his wife. Ladies, this isn't a universal condemnation of women. This is a unique scenario that God uses to show his glory and the pursuit of an unfaithful bride. And so the first three chapters of this marriage and Hosea pursues Gomer, his unfaithful wife, and they have children and they're all named very specifically. You can do a name study in chapter one. Take a look at why God is showing us him through these children's names, through Hosea, through Gomer. And then 11 chapters four through 14 is then Hosea taking that tumultuous time in his life and proclaiming now as a prophet to the nation of Israel. So he spends three chapters grinding with this understanding of him having to pursue an adulterous wife. And then he's told to proclaim that to Israel, that God is pursuing you, us today, an adulterous harlot of a wife. And that's the thrust of Hosea. Two main sections, one through three, four through 14. We're gonna take a look at two through three. So know that the marriage has been set up And what I want us to talk about today, as it says, is a God that pursues. And see, a lot of us don't understand that religion is not about us pursuing God. Faith is not about us pursuing God. Some of you are here because you think, I need to go to church to learn something from the guy that yells at college kids on Saturday night about how I can get back to God or how I can be seen right before God. I'm not here to proclaim to you that I have the key to finding your way back to God. Because you assume you have to make up ground. I'm here to tell you that God, as you turn around in repentance, is on your heels the whole time. He is a God that pursues his people. 
And it's always been this way. We're going to take a look at seven slides. There's three guys in the back. Everyone turn around, please, real quick. On your far left is Kevin. In the middle is Dave, who's trying to slouch down in his chair. And on the right is Dan. The reason that these slides magically change with my word is because of faithful, silent servants in the back. And they don't want to be called out, and I don't care, so I call them out anyways. Okay? And so what we're going to lay out is this sevenfold modus operandi of God in his pursuit of his people. Sound exciting? Is that cool? So we're going to take a look at seven ways that God initiates this MO, this modus operandi. It starts in chapter 2, verse 2. It sounds like this says, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. This is not God saying, I've left. It's a recurring theme. He says in this book all the time, you are not my people. And people are like, that's not a God I want to serve. What he's stating is the fact that you've left me. There is nothing in your life that reflects that you understand me or know me or care for me or seek my holiness. And so when he says, it's not my wife, I'm not your husband, he's not saying like he is abandoned Gomer. Hosea is pursuing Gomer, saying, you're not my wife, you're not acting like my wife. And of course, the massive thrust of this entire thing is that Jesus is pursuing his church and he shows up and says, you're not my wife. You've left me. You're running from me. And so this isn't God leaving man. This is man attempting to leave God. It says, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. It just got awkward. It's only 10.06. (laughs) Lest I strip her naked, it continues to get more awkward and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I would underline just this first part of of, of verse 4. I will not have mercy on her children. For they are the children of harlotry. That just means prostitution. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. Now from verse 2 to where we just read, I I would recommend putting a bracket. I've done the same. My book scribbled in. Put a big bracket and put those two words, God warns. This is the first stage in God's modus operandi of his pursuit of his people. It didn't start with Hosea. It started in Genesis. Before Adam, before Eve, God planted a garden. And they could have anything they wanted. But he did what? He warned them about one tree. He said, but not of that tree. Because on the other side of that is what? Happiness. Death. Is that apple going to taste sweet? By the way, no one's ever been tempted with an apple since. Okay, right? Maybe it was like a cake or something, but, right? So he says, except that, that apple may bring sweetness for a moment, but ultimately it leads to death. And God warns. We serve a God that warns us ahead of time. Because sometimes all we focus on, and we're going to focus on it tonight, is repentance because we've already done something. Sometimes God is just, he shows up, he's like, you know what? Just don't even do it. Just like not step on that side of sin. Like, well, I got repentance, so, oh, I need to repent. Sometimes he's like, hey, before you take this step, be warned. On the other side of it is terrible. It may be sweet for a second, but ultimately it leads to death. 
And some of us are struggling with the fact that God's just warning you. You're on the verge of a sin. You've got stuff that you're clinging to. You might go home today and be like, well, I'm going to, you know, I kind of went to church. It sort of made sense, but, and you're just going to step over that boundary. And God shows up and just flat out warns you. So there's death on the other side of that. We don't talk about the warning enough. We just want to cry once we've screwed it up. God's intent is to know his intent up front. Thank goodness. He's not like just waiting. Like, nope, you shouldn't have done that. I didn't tell you, but you shouldn't have done it. By the way, this is not a book of rules. It's a book of revelation. But he explains to you his nature and his order and the way to process humanity and struggle and trials in humility and happiness and joy. And, and how are you going to know this? Sometimes the warning, like I said, I'm preaching on grace tonight. 12 dimensions. First you take common grace and you take saving grace. And within saving grace, we're going to break down 12 dimensions straight out of scripture. One of them is preached grace. Part of God's grace is that he sends people to preach to people warnings. Because a lot of times you come to church and you're like, the only stuff you're filtering is stuff you've struggled with. Like, well, I've never struggled with alcohol, so the whole rant about alcohol is a sin doesn't really apply to me. Perhaps he's warning you about a sin in the future. Absorb it all. How do you know his revelation if you're not in it? If you don't understand the warning And so God warned Adam and Eve. Hosea warns Gomer. He warns us today. On the other side of sin is death. And he warns. And that's the first step in this process that we're going to see God take us through. And then here's our response. Indicative with all of human history. We just, we follow right up. Adam and Eve didn't get it. And we just do the same dang thing. Put a little bracket around the last part of verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Prostitute says, you know what? I get it. You warned me. I don't really care. I get it. You preached a good sermon. You said on the other side of sin was death, but I got my get out of hell free card. And you take the plunge. She says, fine. You know what? I'll go after my lovers. Who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Put a little bracket around that, write these two words. So God warns, and then what happens? We run. See? We run. God warns, and you're like, you know what? I don't like the way you talk to me. I'm going to go to my other lovers. I'm going to go to my idols. I'm going to go to my sin. We run. God comes down into the Garden of Eden after the fall of humanity. Where are Adam and Eve? They're not like out in the open waiting for him. Like, you see what we did back there? It was pretty crazy with the apple thing. There was a creepy talking snake and all that stuff. They hid. God comes down. God pursues them. They didn't find their way back to God. That's not repentance. They didn't make up ground that they had lost. God came after them. It's not, and then he ushers in the first question in human history. The college students know this better than anyone. What's the first question uttered in human history? God shows up and says, hey, Eve, nice to see you. Where's your husband? And then he says, what? Where are you? Right? I don't know how he said it, but either way, it's creepy. Like, Adam, where are you? Oh, even if it's quiet. It's not like God couldn't find him. Like, I hid my private parts behind a fig leaf so God can't see me. Like, ah, you can't find me, God. This is God saying, 
Where are you? What have you done? You knew. I warned you. You're running. Come out. Let's talk. This is the first call to repentance in human history. God knows where he is, but he wants him to turn from his sin. And so God pursues Adam and Eve. This is one of the major themes of the Bible. I want you to see that. This is not like a unique scenario in Hosea. This is over and over. You should be inverting this understanding that, that, that your faith is about you pursuing God. You pursue the knowledge of God. Don't get me wrong. But you need to understand that God is constantly doing this into human history. So, so here's God. Here's you. And you're running. Uh, college students know I am amazing with my hand modeling, right? Like some of you are blown away right now. Okay? And so sin does this. And then God pursues us the whole time. And then we repent and he's right there. Some of you think it's like this. God sits here and he stays because he's God. And then so I sin and I run off here and then, okay, I repent. And then like I start running, but there's a mountain. It's like the freaking tough mudder. And then you like, you start running. Oh my gosh. And there's gravel and there's an obstacle and there's an, and you have to run back to God. Like you got to make up ground. No, you turn around. God's already there. That's what you need to understand. That's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. It starts in Genesis. The crux of it is on the cross when God swoops into human history and says, I'm going to pursue you again. We are the only faith on the face of the planet where the central event in our religion is the absolute utter humiliation of our God on earth. All religions are pretty much the same. You have not read the Bible. You haven't even listened to Jesus. The major event, the crux of the Christian faith is that God pursued his people on earth in utter, complete humiliation. And Hosea is humiliated as he pursues his wife, his harlot of a wife. And so he warns her and she runs. I'm going back to my lovers. And why does she say she's going to? They gave me bread and water and wool and linen and oil in my drink. And Proverbs 20, 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to man. But after his mouth is filled with gravel. Sin, I'm here to tell you. If you're like, yeah, but, but I see some fruit in my sin. The Bible saw that ahead of time. God saw that ahead of time. There is temporary sweetness to your sin. That apple tasted sweet upon its bite, but on the other side of it is death. And so she says, well, I'm going to run to my lovers because I've got some sweet rewards from it. And so she's running from him. And then in verse six, it says, therefore, behold, start a new bracket. Therefore, behold, I would underline, I will hedge up your ways with thorns. And wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. That's where you end your bracket from six to seven A. I will hedge up your way with thorns. Put a bracket around that. This is the third step in God's pursuit in his modus operandi. God reroutes. God reroutes. See what Hosea is saying. He says, I'm going to 
to the best of my ability, I'm going to make it hard for you to sin. We're in covenant before a holy God. I'm going to do everything I can. We don't know how he did it. Probably because he was so sly in how he did it. He went out, he went ahead of her sin and said, I'm going to place things in your life. I'm going to place prickly trials in your pursuit that are going to reroute you back to me. I'm going to make it sting here and I'm going to make it sting there. Not because he doesn't love her, but because he loves her. That's a good husband. Yes, ladies? A husband that pursues you, that goes ahead of you, that loves you so much that he wants to see you rerouted back to himself. That's a good husband. That's a good God. Are you willing to translate that into your own life? Are the trials in your life, the pricklers that come up, is that God punishing you or is that God rerouting you? I'm here to tell you in all comfort and sincerity, God is not punishing you for your sin. Some of you have been made to believe that by a false gospel, probably on YouTube (laughs) or Twitter. Twitter's dead, by the way. I do social marketing for a living. Don't worry about Twitter anymore. Okay, so, (laughs) right? If you believe that God is punishing for your sin, by extension, you must say that the cross was not efficacious enough. You must, logically, you must say, if God is actively pouring out wrath on you, For your sin, it's because when he took all sin and put it on the cross, yours was actually kind of like particular and he needs a little bit more. And then Jesus didn't actually absorb the wrath. He didn't actually become all sin, past, present, and future. Yours was so bad that God has to deal with you specifically. You see how we make the gospel about us? Even in our sin, I'm so depraved God's punishing me. Stop it. You're being selfish. You're not even being biblical, but, but, I, but I, I hate myself and I'm, I'm depraved and, and God is punishing me. No, he's not. But what he does do, the Bible says, he allows sin to find you out. He lifts his hand of mercy at times and puts these pricklers in your life that begin to reroute you because he's got a plan. He's going somewhere. I was in the Marine Corps and we actually study, when you get to combat training, we actually study how to lay out and very manufactured ways, barbed wire in a battlefield so that you streamline the areas of approach from your enemy. An enemy comes across a a big bustle of barbed wire and they're like, look at the idiots. They left a whole bunch of barbed wire. We'll just go around it. And there's a guy sitting off in a distance saying, I knew you'd do that. And some of you are like, is that God? No, he's not. He doesn't care. God's not like sitting up there with like a 50 cal. Okay, it's not a perfect analogy. Some of you are scared. You're like, this is not a God I want to talk about. It's not a perfect analogy, all right? But you begin to reroute people because you want them to come in a certain way. I didn't mind if enemy was approaching me. I just wanted to know where they were, okay? God's gonna use pricklers in your life. He's gonna use trials in your life to say, hey, it's gonna hurt if you go there. It's gonna hurt if you go here, right? Because he's rerouting you. You're running. Don't get me wrong. This isn't you coming back to him, Okay? Like, oh, I'm repenting. You're running back. He's like, oh, prickler, 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 right? You're headed back to him. No, you're still full bore headed away from him. Back to him, you're running. And he's saying, all right, I'm going to start putting these up. Are you guys going through trials? And again, do you think is God punishing you? Is that the God you serve? That didn't pour out all the wrath on the cross? Or is this a God that's lovingly rerouting you? Which you all confessed makes a good husband. 
And so God reroutes by hedging up our ways with thorns. Look at the second half of verse 7. It says, Then she will say, so the prostitute Gomer says, I will go and return to my first husband. Isn't that sweet? But life out there is tough. So I'm going to head back to the guy that I married. I underlined this next line. For then it was better for me than now. Oh, that's a great love story, isn't it? The whole prostitution thing didn't work out. So I'm going to lovingly just head back to my husband. And he says, for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil. This is verse 8. And multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. The blessing continues, but God is doing something here in our life. And this is how we respond. We respond as Gomer responded. We fake repentance. We fake repentance. We don't understand true repentance. We don't know how it was modeled for us. We don't know how to implement it. We believe that it's about us, not about God. It's about something we have to do to get to God, not something God has done when he came to us. And let's talk about what repentance is not real quickly. Because God comes down into the Garden of Eden and he says, Adam, where are you? And he finally gets a hold of Adam and Adam has the gall to pull God aside. Say, hey, Eve, stay here. I'm gonna have a talk with a big guy real quick. Love you. You're my world. You complete me, right? And he says, hey, God, come here for a second. Hey, sweetie, I'll be there in a second. Don't worry about it. Hey, God, everything was cool till she showed up. <laughs> and you gave her to me. He blames God. Adam just blamed God for sin entering the world. It was cool till she showed up. And by the way, you're the one that made her show up. That's fake repentance. And then he goes over to Eve. And what does Eve say? Well, God, there was a creepy little snake. And he was talking. And I've never seen a snake talk before. And I was scared but curious at the same time. So I went and I did... And she just explains away the circumstances. She fakes repentance. God says, where are you? I want to talk. Just come to me. I'm your dad. I love you. I'm pursuing you. I say, well, we've got some circumstances we need to lay out real quick. And so we fake repentance. Fake repentance sounds like this. Shifting blame, Adam. Excusing the circumstances of sin, Eve. Confession after being caught in sin, right? Like, oh, you saw that? Yeah, I'd really like to come clean about, um, you were just caught. You're not coming clean about anything. Well, I, I'd really like to repent. It's like, you were caught. You're just confessing now that you were caught. You didn't repent. That's not repentance. Some of us today with our sin, we're, just, uh, we're caught. And we're like, I, I'm truly sorry. You know why people don't believe you? Because you're not telling the truth. Oh, but I am, but I am sorry. We'll get to that. That's not repentance. It's not downplaying sin. Like, well, it's actually not that bad. God sort of has these levels of sin, right? And I'm, all I'm doing is, is taking alcohol a little too far a few nights a week. There's people out there murdering for crying out loud. Let's talk about them. I don't see any news stories about, you know, swearing. So clearly it's not that bad. The Bible has nothing to say. Well, it does, but it's like on the lesser. No one really talks about that. We see sin in levels naturally as humans, right? God doesn't. Foot at the cross. 
Foot of the cross, level. It's leveled by sin. So it's not downplaying sin. It's not managing sin. Like this is sort of a Friday sin. It's sort of something I've really regulated like two, like one day a week, six days. I'm, that's good. That's a good percentage. Sales guys in the room, would you love to close six out of seven deals? Right? I'm an online marketer. I want six out of every seven customer to my website to buy a pair of shoes. That would be amazing. The conversion rate, you'd be on top of the world. And we're just like, well, six out of the seven days. And God says, I don't care. One sin, you're running. One sin separates you from me for all of eternity. So it's not managing our sin. It's not manipulating God or people, like apologizing to get something in return. Have you done this? You're like, oh man, I got a big week. I got a big meeting ahead. God, I'd really like to come clean about some stuff. Let's talk about some things because I'm going to need your blessing on Wednesday. Right? And you're like, okay, God's like, oh, I want to come clean. I want to repent real quick because I need you for something. It doesn't even work with people, let alone a sovereign God. People are like, what do you want? You've seen that too. Be like, hey, buddy, what do you want? You don't even have to get to like apologizing. Hey, man. It's like, okay. Why the fake tone? Right? So it's not manipulating God or people apologizing. It's not feeling bad in and of itself. That's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians talking about worldly sorrow. It's like, man, my sin's tearing me apart. How, how, how are you processing that? I feel terrible. So like, what's the next step? I feel terrible. Like, I mean, how is that? I'm probably gonna update my Facebook status. Now they have emotions so I can say feeling sad. So like, uh, like, what happens? I'm probably going to go to sleep and just charge it again tomorrow. That's not repentance. So it's not feeling bad in and of itself. It's not grieving the consequences of sin. Again, oh, I'm real, I'm, it really sucks what happened because of that. While negating the cosmic treason that the origination of sin actually is, it's cosmic treason. And so that's fake repentance. And real quick, we want to talk about what repentance is. We fake repent all the time. Some of you are here, and I'm glad you're here because you're in the process of faking repentance. You thought that this was a bad week and you probably need to show up to church. You ever thought that? I have. Like, man, I can't wait till Sunday. You waited six days to, quote, get to God. You waited, I mean, you couldn't drop on your knees at the side of your bed. You're like, I'll figure, I'll wait till Sunday. If Pastor Rob is a blazing, oh, it's a guest speaker, forget it. I'll come back next week. Some of you are here because you're in some bizarre world where you have to drive from your house to some bizarre little business park with a lawnmower store next door and actually approach God in that manner. You're fake repenting. You're fake repenting. So what is repentance? Is it, is, it, is it liking how someone apologized to another friend of yours? Do you look to the world for that? How on earth does God model repentance for us? Have you ever thought about that? If it's always about him, he has something to say about it. He's modeled it for us in some way. I'm here to tell you that repentance was perfected on the cross. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was sinless. I've read that so many times. It's true. 
And I started to think, uh, when I was getting ready to teach on repentance a little while back, I was just praying to God. I said, God, I need to know, I don't want to, I looked at no commentaries. Now keep in mind, I'm probably not the first guy to receive this from God. I pray not. I pray there's tens of thousands of pastors across the globe that God said, here's what, in my heart, here's the truest definition of repentance. And I was on my motorcycle. Some of you see me on the freeway, like, I'm I'm like doing a sermon, right? (laughs) I said, God, what is, what is, what is your way of dealing with sin? He's like, Mark, it's been in front of you the whole dang time. What do you mean? Get off your high horse and turn around. Oh, okay, okay, the cross. Well, I get everything's about the cross. Okay, and I get that Paul preaches Christ crucified. But how does that have anything to do with it? Because God dealt with sin on the cross. And in that moment, on the cross, Jesus became your addiction. Jesus became your idols. Jesus became pornography. He became everything disgusting, everything sinful. He looked up and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Because God the Father had turned from him. The first step in repentance is turning away from sin. Turning away from sin. And then what did God do to Jesus as sin? He turned away from him and then he put him to death. That's repentance. Turning from sin and putting it to death. If you can come up with a better definition than the one God gave me, let me know after service. Turning away from and putting to death your sin. That's real repentance. God warns us, we run, he's rerouting, and all we have to turn around and give him is fake repentance. He wants true repentance. He wants you to show the world what he did with sin by doing the same with your sin. That the families and the friends would see you turn from habitual sin, turn from one-time sin, turn from it and put it to death by the grace of God reflects him, not you. It's not about how tough you are and how you overcame it. Stop it. You can't overcome it. He already has. That's the difference between the anti-gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we fake repentance And that was our response to God. So clearly he needs to take drastic measure. Hosea is a book of drastic language, drastic measures. Sounds like this starting in verse nine. After we've faked our repentance, it says, therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Verse 10, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she has said, these are my wages that my lover has given me. It tasted sweet, but it becomes gravel. So I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her. Wait a minute. Mark, you just said God doesn't punish us for our sin. I got this question after the first service or else it wouldn't have even been in the sermon because I blew right by it. What's the difference about God punishing in Hosea? Cross hadn't happened yet. 
God was showing his wrath, the implication for humanity, through people leading up to the cross. There's, there's active wrath, there's passive wrath. You need to know that we're in a state of, of passive wrath. Because if you read Revelation, it's going to get violent again. Okay? But all of God, so when you read this, and that, the, the couple that came up to me said, I struggle with that, Mark, but you just said they don't punch me. And I was reading in, in, in so-and-so book, and I said, the cross hadn't happened yet, and you could just see the relief. That doesn't mean you're complacent. It means you're all the more glorifying to the God that removed it. So yeah, it says punish. The cross hadn't happened yet. This is all foreshadowing the ultimate wrath that would be poured out on the cross. It says, I will punish her for the days of Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. Put a bracket around this. If you haven't been doing it, put a bracket around these passages. Sometimes God has to empty us. If he warns us and we run, he's rerouting and we turn around and offer him fake repentance, it makes sense that he says drastic measures are now needed. Are you at a point in your life where you feel like you're just being emptied? Have you just been fake repenting, not relying on him, relying on yourself, relying on the world, relying on the idols? Relying on your sin, your addiction. And God just starts to allow you to be emptied. Everything passes through his sovereign hand. Do we agree? What are you complaining about? Do you see that this is part of God pursuing you? Not only did you make it past the barbed wire and the pricklies that he's putting to reroute it, you offered fake repentance. Now he's emptying you. You need to invert the paradigm. You need to understand that that is God pursuing you. In your trials, he's pursuing you. He says, bring me closer. I'm gonna bring you closer. We were talking about this on the way up to the Tahoe on Friday. We were talking about when we lost, when my wife and I lost our second baby. I said, how did you deal with that? I said, I came to a place in my life where I realized if God saw that shock tactic as necessary to ensure that we're drawn closer to him, so be it, I trust him. If that's a prickler, if that's us being emptied of something in our life, by the grace of God, if that ensures that all three of us at the time are in heaven together, I'm cool with it. My wife has a ministry to women that she never had before. I have an experience that gives me a, a further understanding of trials and being emptied of something and feeling so drained, but be re, being able to rely on God. says, look, this is part of my pursuit. This isn't a love story that we like. How many of you have read the book based off Hosea? What's it called? Redeeming Love. How many of you read Redeeming Love? I have not, so don't ask me about it, okay? <laughs> I stick with the original script, all right? You should read it. <laughs> it's... This is not a, a love story that makes Hollywood. It's not. This is God's type of love story. And he says, I'm going to need to do this. Hosea, you're going to need to do this in your pursuit of an unfaithful wife. And we've been unfaithful. We've been unfaithful. Some of us are going to head right out after this and go worship food like no other in humankind history. I just got back from Haiti. Convicting. Right? And the trials and the emptiness at times, your view of God greatly influences how you see all that and whether or not it's working together for, for good. It's a part of God's pursuit of us because you're running. 
And so God empties us. And in verse 14, this is, this is the big one. And here's the thing. I'm not even going to attempt to put it into words. I'm not. I'm simply going to read the rest of the chapter. Is that fruitful enough? Is that okay? Are we excited about that? We're just sort of like, tell me about the tough mutter. It was terrible, right? This is actually God's words. Do we believe that? Just, just logically or in our heart too? Both. So you're like, too many questions. Right? Just, I'm just going to read God's pursuit of his people. That's it. This is how God pursues you. Pray right now in this instant that the Holy Spirit just reveal how it's playing out in your life because I can't mediate that relationship. And God's pursuit of his people, I would put a bracket from verse 14 all the way to the end of this chapter. God's pursuit of his people, God's pursuit of Adam and Eve, God's pursuit of Israel, God's pursuit of the church, God's ultimate pursuit in the end sounds like, therefore behold, I will allure her. We'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, those are just idols, that they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will give, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow for her myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. Christian, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. God pursues his people. No one on the face of the planet could more articulate God's pursuit than that section of scripture, in my opinion. God wrote it, we submit to it. Notice the constant theme, you to me. That's his work, not yours. You've deviated from God and you've been running. And this whole time, some of you are assuming God's here waiting for you to turn around and get back to him. That path back is what separates the real gospel from a false gospel. 
The real gospel is that you've deviated and God's been on your tail the entire time, like a good husband. And in repentance, when you turn from sin, he's there. Take comfort. Invert your thinking. God is there. He has warned you. You've run. He's rerouted. We've fake repented. He empties at times and then pursues. And then chapter three. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover. Hosea, take your wife. Jesus, take your bride. A woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes. See, now we're talking about cake, right? Then we can understand, okay? Of the pagans. So I bought her for myself. I underline that. I recommend you do too. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. You can put a bracket around this whole chapter and title it two words. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Homer goes, er, not Homer. See how I put Hosea and Gomer together, right? See that? I got home at three. Graces. Okay, so... Hosea is told to go to the marketplace where his wife is on pedestal with other property being sold to bidders. Hosea, a prophet, a prophet of Israel shows up at the marketplace with the commoners bidding on people and livestock and property and resources. And they say, check out your spiritual, your slut of a wife. Check out your whore and harlot of a wife. She slept with people, Hosea. She went around at night while you were sleeping, while you were looking for her. She winked back at the guys at the mall that winked because they know her in a way that only a husband should know her. Look at her. Hosea says, it's true. And I will pay for her. I will ransom her. That's my wife. And see, some of you think that you're gonna stand before the judge in eternity and Jesus is going to refute the accusations, the accusations that are leveled against you. Revelation says that we have an accuser. That's Satan. First John, as we're studying with Pastor Rob, says we have another capital A. What's that? An advocate. Those are legal terms. We stand before a judge. 
the accuser levels all the charges. Everything you've done, every bad thought, every impure impulse, every time you've double glanced at a girl's legs, gentlemen, right? Every time you spent a little too much time in that page in the romance novel, ladies. I was letting that one sink in. All right, so... I never have just, yes, you have. Everything you've done will be leveled to you in the end times. And you think Jesus is going to refute that. Jesus is going to stand there in the marketplace and say, you're right. You're right. But I'll pay for her. Jesus says, you know what? You're right, but I'll pay for her. Hosea purchased Gomer. Jesus purchased us. Submitting to his pursuit, I pray, is a new light on your faith. Submitting to a pursuit, not figuring out what you need to do. You haven't obtained mercy We just read that. You were given mercy by his grace. Jesus says, everything you've said about my wife, everything you've said about Micah and Micah, I got so many Micahs in the college thing, and Weston, right, and Natalie, everything you've said about them is true. And that's my wife. And I will pay for her. Because you see, this entire pursuit is not Because it glorifies us. It's not. Understanding God's pursuit, repentance, trials, everything is about reflecting as an image bearer what he has done. And so in your running, in your trials, in his pursuit, he's not pursuing you because you've earned it. He's pursuing you Because a holy God, as we saw in Genesis, as we saw on the cross, as we're going to see in Revelation in the end times, our God is a God that pursues his people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I ask as the worship team comes up that this would just begin to be impressed upon our heart as you've been chastening me for weeks on this just understanding the areas in my life that I think it's up to me to pursue you and realizing it's up to me to repent and see that you've been pursuing me the whole time. I pray that we're emboldened. That as image bearers of you, we understand that in our trials, in our emptiness, in our gladness, in our joy, our job is to reflect a God that is pursuing us. I thank you for that revelation. I thank you for that clarity, that understanding that you are a God that cares so much that you pursued us. You pursued us in the garden. You pursued us on the cross, but it's not over yet. You're gonna pursue us again in the end when you make all of this, all of this for your glory, when sin will be wiped from the face of the planet, the entirety of creation, ourselves included, will be restored. We look forward to that because we serve a God that pursues. We repent today so we turn around and can see you more clearly. I ask that you bless this time of worship. 
In Jesus' name, amen.